My name is James Hill and welcome to MISC, a podcast series of my interesting snappy chats with successful people about the themes, ideas and experiences that challenge them. My guest today is Andrea Derbach. Andy is a professor of law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and a former director of the Australian Human Rights Centre. Before moving to Australia, Andy practised as a political trial lawyer and human rights advocate in South Africa, where she represented many victims and opponents of apartheid laws. One of her most notorious cases is known as the Uppington 25, where 25 black citizens were convicted of a single policeman's murder, a trial of political complexity that also ended in the assassination of her friend and fellow defence lawyer. Andy has dedicated her life and career to pursuing equality and justice, and it's a pleasure to speak with her at this tumultuous time in global politics. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's a pleasure, James. Um, It's interesting that we're speaking now. Of course, over the past couple of weeks, we have seen horrific images of police brutality coming out of the US. Most recent example being the murder of George Floyd and then the subsequent police brutality and suppression of largely peaceful protest in in the US. Um, But this has moved on to a broader conversation about pervasive systemic inequality that we see across institutions. Law, law enforcement in the US being just one of those. And it strikes me that growing up in, in South Africa as a witness to an opponent of apartheid laws and injustices, that it's a scarily similar conversation we're having now to as it might have been in um, pre-91 South Africa. Uh, how have you been feeling over the past couple of weeks? And um, do, you, do you draw any parallels there? Well, it's a, it's a sort of complicated response I have in many ways because at some level it was inevitable. Um, it was almost like just a matter of timing, like when is this going to erupt again? When will the cycles of history push people to the extremes again so that this inevitability happens? And, you know, the fight against racism, like the fight against um, gender injustice, is it's an it's an ever increasing struggle it it's not going to be stopped or prevented or cured overnight and while all the factors that embed are embedded in the sort of racist context like poverty and disparity um a lack of education lack of access to resources while all of those are present um it it's it's not it's not something that i think we should be shocked by and but at some level i suppose what did shock me was the extent of the response by the police and certainly by the government um i those images of rubber bullets and tear gas um and baton charging and shoving and pushing and throwing people to the ground um yes those those evoked horrendous memories of the apartheid struggle. Um, But, you know, every struggle is unique. And I suppose um, what has been happening is a sense of I'm I'm sort of in some way relieved that this is, you know, finally coming out because under, certainly under the current regime, Trump regime, um, there is such a extreme kind of manifestation of disparity and inequality and force this incredible aggression that is coming from the so-called leadership in America that you almost feel something just 
had to spark it, and it's amazing that it hasn't happened before. I mean, the George Floyd murder was such a manifestation of a depraved kind of racism and power and a culture of impunity that has existed in that country. And I think that's another similarity with apartheid South Africa, is that police and security agents got away with murder And finally, we have to now, the world is actually, and maybe the COVID-19 experience has pushed people to such extremes that finally all these forces have come together to allow for this necessary, despite the fact that it has horrendous consequences, this necessary eruption. If you you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to take us back to South Africa. What was it like growing up and being educated in, in South Africa during apartheid? Well, I always found it very bizarre. You know, I always felt like I was living in these kind of very different and parallel worlds. Um, And I was probably quite lucky because I had parents who were very aware of the racist society in which they were bringing up their children. And um, so I was, my mother was a journalist and wrote about the impact of apartheid on people's lives in very ordinary kind of circumstances. You know, the Group Areas Act, our whole communities that that existed beautifully near to where I lived were suddenly just bulldozed overnight and people were shunted out to to kind of barren um barren lands um outside of of where this beautifully vibrant community had been living. And um there were people who were prevented, you know, we couldn't go to the same schools, we couldn't go to the same music concerts, we couldn't sit on the same park benches. Park benches had signs on them saying, non-whites, um, not allowed to sit here, whites can sit here. Buses were segregated, you know, it was kind of crazy stuff. When you grow up in it, there is a part of you that has to live in it and you become inured to it in some de- to some degree but um i because as a child i i often accompanied my mother to interviews for her writing um i was reminded of injustice by my parents very often but also it was sort of right it hit you right between the eyes you just think there's some other world that i'm not having access to where people are being treated differently to me because of the color of my skin. That just is insane and cruel and inhuman. So if, I think it, I was constantly aware of living in this very bizarre, um, unhealthy, dysfunctional, but also very, very brutal um, environment. And, and, and as you did um, protest against that, what were some of those experiences like? How were you treated? as an anti-apartheid protester at, at that time? Well, as a, as a kid in school, you know, just probably lost friends um, and, and, and my parents lost friends um, because of our stance. But it's, as students, it became much more serious um, where the police would come onto campus and with their dogs and their batons and their, their, their tear gas canisters and their rubber bullets. And when you first encounter it, you think the sound of firing of a tear gas canister sounds like you're, they're firing real bullets. Um, and so, yeah, it was very, very scary. Um, but also very, there was a collective kind of commitment that I 
absolutely valued and wanted to be a part of and wanted to be able to make the change, um, you know, as, as little as it possibly was at the time. You still felt like there were there were possibilities where you could wedge open this monolith that was apartheid through your activities, through your writing, through your publications in student journals or student newspapers, um, through making stands in lectures. You'd stand up and... and but you always had support. There was this amazing kind of welling up of support. And I have to say, James, it's something that I miss in Australia. Because there's a there's a there's less to lose, and yet there is so little um, kind of collective, or, you know. And I have to say, I'm going to correct myself because the latest protests amidst the COVID nineteen restrictions were just amazing to see that there is a capability in this country. If people really want to and feel deeply about something, they will act. But I came into a country that, that where I missed that kind of energy and commitment and conviction um, that came from, from being in such a overtly racist society where there was that sense of urgency that you have to do something about this because within our lifetimes we wanted things to change. But when did you see that opportunity to use, if you don't mind me saying, your, your whiteness and your privilege in South Africa? When, when did you decide to use that combined with the study of law to, to affect a, a change? What was that? What was a trigger moment for you? Uh, particularly, I think, as a kid, you know, just seeing that, that black children were treated differently. Why? Just it, 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 that level of injustice, um, just something in me, just it sparked... A, a, a kind of real concern and an empathic response, I think. But that also grew into a response that needed to be strategic, needed to be thought through, and needed to find uh, resources that would allow me to hold people to account. And I think that's why I studied law, because even though law was used in South Africa to entrench apartheid, the legislation was very much um, a consequence of racism in many ways. You know, we were permitted to be racist through the law. But at the same time, the law could be used to crack open, um, as you know, used as a sword, really, not just as a shield, to actually burst open um, and hold people to account who acted in ways that were so contrary to human, just sort of decency and and respect for for other yeah and i I think i read an article um of yours where i almost got the sense of the thrill that you might have felt looking for loopholes to use the law against itself in in moments like that i don't know if that's right yeah it is right it Um, is right there were moments too when the law was used very much to shut us out um but you'd keep going back and i think what i learned very much is you have to ride the waves of kind of legal opportunity because there are there are judges who will who will kind of move towards your position and others who will shut you down um but there are con- there's sort of contextual circumstances also you need to know when you go in and you ride the wave or when you retreat and wait for the moment that's politically opportune what was it like when you then started to practice law was there a difference between 
that and protest. I was very, very fortunate to to uh, be an articled clerk and learn my trade and learn my skills in a context where the managing partner of my law firm had been someone very much part of the anti-apartheid struggle. He had been Nelson Mandela's lawyer in Cape Town. Uh, Nelson Mandela had lawyers both in Johannesburg and Cape Town. So we were, I was always very conscious of an ethos and a sort of value system that permeated through our law firm. And so I was able to strategize with people who had been through this before. And so my work as a lawyer um, was representing students and the clergy and journalists, um, trade unions, all of whom, um, you know, relied on our skill and our, our strategizing to move them towards uh, a, a sort of better outcome or to free them up from certain constraints. I was also thinking when you, when you, when you gave the answer of intoxicating cocktail of emotions that you must have felt there because, yes, you're representing the injustices to a people um, because of the colour of their skin, but you're also professionally, it must have been immensely satisfying to not only you know, ha- have the skill to affect change, but to work in a firm that supported you using your skill to affect change. But also when you got the wins, they were so meaningful. So professionally, it must have been an incredible time in a very difficult context. And I hope I explained that. I hope I got that you across. You ab- absolutely did, James. I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> when you use the word, excuse me, intoxicating, um, you know, yes, I, I don't want to romanticize it yes. in any way, but I think that... I, th- I think what was so extraordinary was that it was a period of great creativity. So it wasn't just applying the law or being very sort of black letter law um, law practitioners. We were actually using the law in very creative ways um, and taking our chances with that. And then, so so when you've got those elements, which are kind of fragile elements, yes. and you win. On, on, on that basis, it is, it takes you to a whole nother level. But I think what, what can, society demonstrated for us and what our clients always reminded us was, yes, you can win, but the very next day you can lose yet again. It was an incredibly exhilarating period for lawyers um, and others, but also we, there were the, the horrendous moments where where you would be in situations where clients would be killed or tortured, um, and those would always um, bring you back to the horror. Yeah, and I, and I was going to ask you a question actually about, uh, no doubt, quite a, a challenging case and high-profile case that you worked on. In 1988, you were appointed as a solicitor to 25 black defendants uh, accused of murdering one policeman in the Uppington 25. I wonder if you could tell us a, a little bit about that. Well, it was a case that, that came very much out of um, a period of what um, historians now refer to as a period of ungovernability. And it's kind of interesting that you asked me about what's going on in my reaction to what's going on in America at the moment, because it does feel that there is a period of ungovernability mm-hmm. um, in America at the moment, that... Um, the the executive, for want of a better word, in, in America, has lost the ability to govern, 
and people are then rising up in response. Um, and I think that was what was happening in South Africa in the mid to late 80s, that finally um, the walls, the fortress that was apartheid was was crumbling. And um, so it, it, was a, it was a period when there were lots of protests across the country, there were lots of... Um, fires, you know, I remember just the sense, sense of the smoke and the fires and the burning and the destruction that that inevitably was coming from people who had been oppressed for so long that they were rising up um, and having to remind us that there are people living there that need to be heard. As Martin Luther King so accurately said, that rioting and protesting comes from the voices of the unheard and people are pushed to these extremes and limits and then this is what what ultimately happens. So the Uppington case came out of that context when a, um, a group, a large group of people in an impoverished community uh, sort of in the northwest part of South Africa um, gathered on a soccer ground one morning to protest um, police brutality and lack of work and and poverty, um, and the police moved in with their dogs and their tanks and their bullets and their tear gas and their batons and disrupted this meeting, which was a peaceful meeting. Um, and then, of course, um, enraged and provoked the crowd. And what tragically happened was that a, a young policeman, a black policeman, who in fact was known to many of the people who were eventually convicted of his murder. He was known to them. They had played soccer together, but he was also seen as a traitor because he had, out of for reasons of poverty, of course, he had joined the police force that oppressed these people and humiliated them. And so in this very intense, frenzied moment, um, he was killed quite brutally in a crowd situation, and 26 people were arrested for the murder of Lucas Setwale, this policeman. And I represent. I was asked to represent um, 25 of them. I was not asked to represent them at the time of conviction. They had their own lawyer, um, a, another lawyer at the time. Um, where I came into the case was at this alarming point of the case where 25 of the 26 were convicted, as you said, of the murder of one man, which even in the context of apartheid, South Africa seemed utterly untenable and ludicrous because it's giving this kind of, it's throwing this cloak of of criminal liability over 26 people when in fact what the criminal law demands is that every individual show that they had both the intention to kill and that they participated in the physical act of killing. And there was no way that you could prove that. So 25 people were convicted, and I was called in at the point when they, it was at the time when a murder conviction uh, meant a sentence of death, mm. unless you could show extenuating circumstances, and that's when I was brought in to the uh, case. For the listeners, I didn't necessarily realise that it was a no-jury system yes. in those courts then, and then the judge had applied something called a, a common purpose doctrine which meant that he was happy to lump all 25 or 26 um, defendants into the same basket. And of course, I think I've listened to you say before that it it would be very unusual for 25 people to be responsible for one person's 
death. Yeah, legally, it's very unusual. Um, politically, not. Yes. I mean, in South Africa, we saw that happen all the time, that there was this um, cloak of criminal liability, as I said, just just sort of thrown out to, to haul in many people who were who were basically participating in legitimate protest um, and or, or, or strikes um, when workers were were, were abused or um, um, so th- they were they were lawful acts really um, that were then um, made illegal through the application of as you say this awful common purpose doctrine which was misused and inappropriately applied which is what the appeal court found had been the case. Um, so, yes, 25 people under the Common Purpose Doctrine convicted of the murder of one man facing the death sentence, and then we were brought in to try and demonstrate extenuating circumstances to try and get them not to apply, get the court not to apply the death sentence. 14 of the 25 actually were sentenced to death. Um, again, given the context, um, it was you know we we actually didn't think they would go that high. We thought maybe five or four or five of our clients might get the death sentence, but it was extraordinary that so many of them were sentenced to death. Um, and then um, we were luckily successful on appeal because we were able to show just the complete disingenuity of, of the way the judge had applied the common purpose doctrine. It must be hard to to speak about, but your your barrister and your friend Anton Lebowski Lebowski um, was assassinated. That must have been terrifying. Yeah. So Anton was the barrister to the twenty five. I was his instructing solicitor. In fact, he was the person who got me involved in the case. We'd met at a conference, and he said, "You know about this case that's happening, and um, they're probably facing the death penalty." And I was. I thought he was exaggerating um, the, the the facts. Um, anyway, I, I agreed to take it on with him, and um, then um, a year later, as uh, we were about to um, approach the court f- to um, consider all the extenuating circumstances in its final final phase of the the trial on extenuation, Anton, who was a political, a very outspoken political advocate for a free Namibia, or as it was then known, Southwest Africa. Um, and he was very, very significant in that struggle, had been in detention, had been tortured. Uh, he was, um, he had announced that he was probably going to withdraw from the trial because he was going to move into, I would um, have imagined, a government role in the new free Namibia, which was about to um, happen, um, and he was assassinated in s- September 1989, which was just towards the end of, of the Uppington trial. Um, I had been um, in London at the request of the anti-apartheid movement to come and put pressure on, get some leverage from the European community and from the English and Irish governments to put pressure on the South African government not to execute our clients, the 14. And the day that I arrived back, um, I called Anton to say that um, 
We had petitioned the Chief Justice for appeal and we'd been granted the appeal and so it was an amazingly exciting moment that we were now facing a new prospect for our clients. And that night he went home and was assassinated. Um, so it was, it, it was a, yeah, it was a, um, shocking, devastating, almost unbelievable moment in my life, um, where someone who'd been so central to an extraordinary, uh, trial that we'd run together, um, and had been absolutely the sort of, I used to call him the pop star for our clients because he would walk into the courtroom and you could just feel the, the kind of shift in gear, emotional gear of our clients. They just had this amazing response to him. Um, and he would give them hope. And here was this extraordinary man, 37 years of age, cut down in the prime of his legal and political life and a extraordinary friend and support to all of us. So it was, you know, I, I had been aware there had been people assassinated in South Africa. There'd been people killed in detention. Um, people who I, I, I knew of, I, it had never touched me that directly. And, um, it was a very, yeah, it was a turning point in my life. I think it really, really was to feel that one could achieve so much through the law only to then discover that just in a split second, um, it can all fall down again and change. Did that have anything to do with you then leaving South Africa and moving to Australia? Because, and please, please correct me um, if, if I'm wrong, but the trial finished, but then you actually ran the appeal whilst you were living in Australia and you came back for the appeal? Is that came that back for the appeal. Yeah. So yes, Anton was killed in September and it was a very frightening period. Um, I was receiving threats and, and, um, I was very aware that, that, um, life was now quite different. Um, it was a, you know, that, that moment where you kind of go, you're in the throes of your work and it's kind of moving along at this, it's sort of this catapulted really through, the energy of your clients and the issues you're fighting, and then suddenly you get a reality check. Um, well, like you feel you're achieving these things. You feel not invincible, but you feel on the crest of the wave, and then you realise actually the stakes are – it's a reminder that the stakes are so high. Exactly, exactly. But there was also, James, a feeling that this goes on for black people all the time, yeah, yeah. and I'm this white middle-class girl with incredible um, – access to resources and just needing to kind of get a grip that, um, you know, life has to go on and you have to move through this. But there was a nagging sense of, of a, a mixture of grief, terrible grief and fear um, and a sense that maybe it was time to reflect and to think about, yes, just this kind of cavalier approach that we did have um you know you, you did think to use your your description there was an invincibility about it because you were carried along by these amazing communities and your work and then suddenly it's it it reveals a crack and a fragility that makes you think very carefully about your next step and, and i suppose in, in some ways you're fortunate enough to be able to to move to Australia, but you certainly, um, since 
uh, moving to Australia, you've continued your work in human rights advocacy in a number of roles in a number of organisations. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about some of those. Well, you know, I, I, it, I was reminded of, of um, why one has to do this work. Um, recently I was reading um, a paper and in it um, quoted the words of a, an amazing academic in South Africa, Mampele Rampele, who um, also an activist, a public health advocate, um, and she said it's not where you live that matters, but what you do where you live that matters. And so, you know, the, that place and that experience is in every cell of who I am. And so just because I'm moving to Australia doesn't mean that I'm going to shift my, my desires or how I want to work or a sense of purpose that I've always had around what work is. Um, and I think there was an expectation that I would simply move. I would simply sort of seamlessly move into working with Indigenous Australians and and race and um, inequality. But I'm also very mindful that no, you can you can learn the lessons of different struggles around the world, but you can't replicate them, and you shouldn't, because then you trivialise each struggle. Each struggle has its own gravitas and its own methods and its own history. And yes, they're overlappings, but you can't simply say one is like the other. And so it took me a long time to move into work around Indigenous Australians. I wanted to really understand that history and I wanted to experience through building relationships and, and get a, a kind of a, a, a rigour around um what I could usefully do. So I, I, I initially worked in private practice and then I joined an organization called the Public Interest Advocacy Center, PIAC, um, where I did, you know, um, a lot of work around, um, um, discrimination and gender justice, um, access to health. Um, I was amazed when I first came to Australia at the extent of rights mm-hmm. that was available through the sort of discrimination legislation, sex and race and um, disability and now age, you know. So I I kept sending all these amazing pieces of legislation back to colleagues in South Africa saying, you should replicate this. Little did I know that South Africa was then going to develop its own unique, extraordinary and comprehensive Bill of Rights, Mm. which we still don't have nationally in this country, to our shame. Um, So I, I... I did do that work and I set up um, um, a homeless person's legal service and a pro bono legal service. And then um, at the time of the bringing them home inquiries, when I really moved into the world of, of Indigenous Australians, and again, it was drawing as much of my work does on the South African experience, which was looking at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and saying, why don't we have something similar in Australia? Why don't we have reparations for the stolen generations in particular? This seems extraordinary. And so we developed a proposal for a stolen generations um, reparations tribunal, um, which got somewhere with the government of the day. And then when the government changed, of course, it was, it was dismissed as an idea. Um, so I've always worked 
around this notion of accountability and reparations for human rights violations. I'm particularly interested in the sort of economic, social and cultural rights dimension of that. Um, You had mentioned that without proper restorative and restitutional justice, apologies, and I think it was Kevin Rudd, was it, that gave the the apology? But those apologies for behaviour can get stuck at just the symbolic level. How, How have you found that frustration? Or that, or that, um, the drive it gives you um, throughout your career in Australia. Mm. I think that's where we fall back as a society, and I'm not saying South Africa has done particularly well on reparations, but it was a consideration. It was a big factor for the TRC, but it also was a country having to undergo massive reconstruction and redistribution of wealth, and so reparations for human rights violations under the apartheid regime almost started to lose its urgency because it had to give way to this other agenda that the country was having to, or mandate that the country was having to implement. Whereas in Australia, um, we do have the opportunity to do both. We can do the symbolic, and I'm not saying that the apology to the certain generations wasn't important. It was fundamentally important, despite the fact that it was very late in our history. Um, It was an incredibly significant moment for this country and it presented some promise and you thought that by opening up that possibility of apology it would be accompanied by the necessary measures of justice to make it real and when I say that I mean reparation so giving people back language, land, um, the whole native title um, agenda had started to, to start toppling a little and showing its 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 weaknesses and a sort of reclaiming of the importance of the Mabo decision again, um, making sure there was proper representation in government, reconnecting families, dealing with the high levels of incarceration of, indig- of Indigenous people, dealing with domestic violence, all the things that I think were covered in the Bringing Them Home inquiry. Um, uh, we needed to then develop reparations about around those recommendations, and we failed. And so what starts to happen, and you see this in the emotional kind of um, um, the emotional world of people, particularly Indigenous people, is that there's this promise, there's this giving of an apology, and then there's this sliding back away from what the expectation was that would accompany that apology. And so what I mean then by saying it gets stuck at the symbolic, it becomes gesture politics. And so people lose trust in the institutions of government. They lose faith in the possibility of change. And so that's why we get these eruptions, because people are just tired and exhausted by the cycle of hope and then disenchantment. Broken promise, I suppose, isn't it? That feeling. Completely. Yeah. It, it almost caught you by surprise that the amount of rights that you had in Australia moving from um, South Africa. Did you feel a different energy in your work when you moved to Australia with, I, I guess, the infrastructure of these rights around what you could what you could do and what you could achieve? Sort of yes and no. I mean, I found that quite interesting because there were a huge amount of rights that we could use, mm. absolutely. Um, um, and it did create a different palette of work. It, it, it did create those opportunities. You didn't have to go in always fighting. 
you know, you could go in saying the rights are here and the courts simply must declare those rights and assert those rights and breathe life into those rights. In South Africa, we didn't have the rights to start off with. So you were creating rights through the use of the common law and trying to sort of open up these little tiny spaces of possibility to create new law. It wasn't simply a matter of the courts being asked to assert the law that already exists um, and that could be used. But, you know, of course... In the Australian context, um, sometimes we've had to face um, that those rights are not interpreted in the way that we would hope they were by the courts, that there is a conservatism. Um, and uh, so it, 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 at one level, yes, it, it, there was opp- far greater opportunity to use the law, the legislation, um, <clears throat> to secure people's rights, but at the same time, we couldn't be complacent about that. And we had to always remember that there was always going to be that opportunity where courts might interpret it in ways different to how you imagine they would because of political context or because of the, the, the conservatism. But, you know, I there are moments of, you know, I experienced this recently when the court the New South Wales Court of Appeal recently, Supreme Court, overturned a decision um, to allow the, the protests uh, last week, for instance, amidst the COVID-19 restrictions. Yes. So there are these moments when, yeah, the cracks are revealed and there's an opportunity to move in and create um, some sort of just outcome. And returning that full circle to the Black Lives Matter movement and the Aboriginal Lives Matter movement here in, in Australia, some of the solutions that are being discussed, say, like to defund the police in um, the the US. How do you think they will translate to Australia? And do you think Australia feels as close to pivotal change as we feel from the US as we feel from the US at the moment? It's a kind of complicated and a conflicted position for me because I I the, the wheels of change in this country are very 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 slow when it comes to indigenous rights. Um I find it extraordinary how COVID-19 um, was able to um, kind of trigger this amazing shift and change overnight in the way a country can respond to a crisis. And the problem is that we don't see the indigenous situation in this country as a crisis. And it is. And it's a crisis that impacts on every other way how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves as a nation. It affects everything about how we do what we do, our values, our our place in the world. Um, and so it kind of we can make that shift if we want to. And it's it's a dramatic shift and we've showed that we were capable of doing that. And yet when it comes to the indigenous struggle, there is something very ungenerous about this country in its approach. And I'm still trying to get to the root of what that is. And and I I think to some degree it's about a, f- a facing, a confronting of our own complicity in that history, that if we were to do that, we would feel undone by that experience. And what I want to say is um, there's no greater moment of liberation when you do that when you confront your complicity in some horror or injustice and use that 
to make a difference and change and shift gear, there is no greater um, moment of, of, of liberation and freedom when you do that. And if we can only see that as an opportunity and take that, that leap, as the Uluru Statement is trying to invite us to do, um, I think there'll be an amazing have amazing ramifications for this country's evolution. We also mentioned that big business or big institutions mm-hmm. have a responsibility as well. I mean, we, we spoke very briefly um, at the beginning about uh, Rio Tinto's decision, who signed up to the Uluru um, statement and then very recently just decided to blow up um, a historic Aboriginal cave with about 42,000 years of history. 46,000 years of history of a sacred site. So that, yes, I think that's the thing that worries me too about institutions and corporates who have such power in the world, um, wherever we are, that there's this duplicity that they get away with. It's like the police get away with impunity. The corporations get away with duplicity because they need to work with indigenous communities um, in order to to profit. Um, and to profit not only just economically, but reputationally. And and so when that happened, to me that was in this moment of the joy, George Floyd murder, in this moment of uh, National Reconciliation Week and Sorry Day, um, when these are the guys who open their board meetings with acknowledgements to country, who sign on to the Uluru Statement and then go in and blast 46,000 years of, of sacred history, is, it's, it's shameful and disgraceful. And I think what worries me more is that when I speak about this and people say to me, yes, but you know, they had permission under the Heritage Act or whatever the legislation was. They had permission to go in and excavate that land. My response is, apartheid laws gave us permission to be racist. Does that make it right? Mm. I mean, there was clear evidence before Rio Tinto, and they've admitted to this, there was clear evidence that the elders in the Pilbara region had actually spoken to them about the site and the importance of the site. There was an awareness, there was knowledge. And despite that, they go in and blast. And I think it is such a metaphor for what is going on in the world at the moment, what people think they can get away with. I wanted to ask one last question. I managed to dig out a University of Cape Town alumni newsletter from 2012, um, and it contained a transcript of an address you gave at your class reunion in October 2011. Um, And I read it all, and there were a number of ideas and feelings that really struck a chord with me but there's one passage that I really hope uh, you don't mind me repeating and you said to study law against that backdrop to be reminded of its promise and be alerted to its flaws and potential for flagrant manipulation was an extraordinary period of instruction and one which has left its deep imprint on my own practice over the years and now on my teaching it is a period which laid the ground for my aversion to complacency and indifference and consolidated an attraction to question, to, ex- to excavate and to live inside hope. And it is a period which has shaped my take on living responsibly in a democracy, where on the surface, liberty has been 
accomplished. And I, th- and I think that strikes a chord with me because, A, I, I think it's a, a beautifully written, uh, uh, but also because the past few weeks have been a time for me personally on reflection about what I could do to live more responsibly in a democracy. Um, what advice would you give from your, from your career to somebody who wanted to be a better democratic citizen? Oof. I'm, I'm not very good at giving advice. Um, um, but I, I suppose what I would say is, you know, there is a, there's, a, there's a tendency and a very legitimate and justifiable tendency to feel overwhelmed by what we're facing in the planet at the moment. You know, we came out of the bushfires into COVID-19, into this hideous moment of, of racist injustice. Um, and I think what, what we have to do is instead of retreat, because it's, it's, it's so difficult to comprehend the enormity of all these challenges, is we have to go towards the things that make us feel passionate and feel strongly about what matters and focus on that because you always have to remember there will be other people doing the work elsewhere and so you need to find where you fit most appropriately and what you feel you can do um, to take on one of these struggles not necessarily all of them although they all have overlapping implications Um, I think it is important always to remember that liberty is never accomplished, as I said in that quote. It's on the surface it appears to be, and from time to time you think that we're winning. But there's always going to be those moments um, where we fall back. And so we have, to, we have to build bridges that take us across those moments. And I often think, um, and now especially as an academic and working with such amazing students, that we have to build those bridges by crossing not only disciplines and ideas, but also generations. Because I need to be informed by new generations and new thinking and new ways of doing things. We can become very comfortable in our old ways of accomplishing responsibility within, within our lives, but they don't work very often. And they may be, they may have lost their meaning because because climates change and environments change. And so we need to be listening more. I think we're, um, we're being told by what's happening in the world to watch and to listen um, before we act. And I suppose that if I am going to give advice, and it's advice to myself is how I'm telling you this, is that's what I want to be doing, is being able to, to stand back and to reflect because we – We've been given this extraordinary moment, however hideous it's been for so many, many, many people, the loss of jobs and the loss of of security and um, a real confrontation with with ways of living our lives differently. But the COVID-19 period has almost forced the world to stop and to reflect and to look and say, okay, what really matters and how are we going to give effect to what really matters now. Um, because if we don't do it now, you know, I hate to say this because so many people are, and it feels like a trite thing, but how often are we given these opportunities? Um, and I worry that this might be one of the last 
before we really slide off the precipice. Andy, thank you so much for your time. I feel really fortunate to have um, had this time to speak with you. So thank you very much. Well, likewise, it's been wonderful speaking to you. So thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to MISC with me, James Hill, and guest, Andrea Derbach. <laughs>